Just to catch you up, remind you um, what this is about. This little book was written uh, 520 years before Jesus. And obviously, the faith of Israel at the time was somewhat different. It was focused around the temple that was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The same place now where the, 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 uh, the Dome of the Rock is, where you can see the, uh, the mosque there. And uh, all of Israelite faith was focused upon this place. But 70 years before this little book was written, the Israelites had been conquered by the Babylonians and the Persians, and they'd been overrun by these two empires and uh, brought into submission and slavery, and now were being um, returned to the land. But their land was a complete obliterated mess. It's post-war mess. And the temple itself was in ruins. So they'd come back, and 17 years before this book was written, they'd started, they just laid the foundation for the temple, and then they'd quit. They'd given up. And then they thought to themselves, we're better off going and working on our farms and our houses and restoring our own sort of uh, prosperity before we deal with faith. And of course, what we've been talking about is how this is the exact opposite way around to the way Jesus tells us to prioritize the kingdom. He says that we should put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, the stuff that you worry about in life. He says, if you focus first on God and his kingdom, God is with you. He loves you. He wants your heart to be set on him in trust so that he can pour out his blessings towards you. And so what we found is that the pattern of what was going on in Israel at the religion, which was centered on this building project, essentially, is a kind of pattern which applies to the whole of the Christian life. The project is different. We're not building a temple anymore. We're part of God's mission in this world to see his church grow, which is the new temple. But the ideas, the principles, the priorities are exactly the same. So in the first chapter, Haggai was the prophet. He spoke to them. He challenged them. Why are you paneling your houses with all this precious wood and leaving the temple in ruins? And he said, the instruction, God says, go up to the hills, bring the wood, and come down and build the temple. And so they did it. And something extraordinary happened in their hearts. They actually responded to God, which if you've read the Old Testament, you know there's a 50-50 on whether people are going to do that. So God speaks to them, and sometimes they just ignore him. This time, they obeyed him, and as they obeyed him, they started cracking on with the work. Now, the passage we're about to jump into is about three and a half weeks later. And uh, we're going to pick up from chapter 2, verse 1. Just read the first nine verses of this chapter. It says this. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 
In the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I think of this as being one of the most important stories um, for us at this present time. When I think about the situation of the wider church, we've seen a bit of a resurgence in the last few decades of a passion among um, evangelicals and particularly among people who um, love the gospel, love the central message of, um, of our faith, to start new churches and to see the trend in the Western world reversed in terms of a desire to see the world re- re- uh, reached again with the gospel. And so we've seen, we're seeing thousands and thousands of new churches being planted across America and Britain and these areas which have been sort of, we've seen Christianity on the decline, there's kind of an upswell going on. And it's immensely encouraging. This week I was with, um, I was listening to um, a, a man called Don Carson in like an interview setting. And he is a legend in his own lifetime. A man who's um, really helped uh, the church in the West sort of because he's a massive brain, wonderful theologian. Um, I, some of the nerdy ones among you know who I'm talking about. But um, this guy's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's been teaching students for generations and generations in America, in, in, a, in, a, in Chicago. And he said... Actually, the current wave, the, what he's seeing happening in, in the hearts of his students is, is his favorite he's ever seen over the decades. He's 70 now that he's been teaching. And he's, he explained that the reason was that these young people who are, who, are, who are learning theology and want to go out and plant churches, he said they are, um, they're, they're asking all the right questions. How can I plant in the inner city in a church that will reach different races and nationalities? And uh, the, the kind of heart that they have is a humble one. They want to be mentored by him and learn from him rather than the arrogance of previous generations he described. And so all this stuff is wonderful. There's amazing things happening. And uh, you know, even this church is a result of something of that resurgence that's going on because we've been caught up in the same vision. We want to see new churches planted across London. But nevertheless, when you see a move like this beginning... The danger is that it, 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 it peters out when people get discouraged. You know, you do hit walls and you hit, um, you hit discouragements in, our, in your own heart. It's important for the wider church to grasp what was going on in this little book of Haggai. It's important for us individ- as, as just one congregation as well. Because we're a relatively young church. We're just two and a half years into our existence. And um, one of the dangers always is that these things are fragile in the early days, that people come and go, especially in a city like London, where commitment levels are very, very low. People very, they don't even commit to staying in the city for very long, never mind staying in a single church. They prefer to flit around and flirt with different places and see where they can get the best coffee and all the rest of it. And so um, these things mean that you, know, you, you, can, you, can, you can be vulnerable to discouragement. But I know it's also true for you personally, because I've experienced this. We all experience this. That uh, every good intention that begins well, sometimes these things fade and diminish and, and we struggle, don't we, to follow through on our good intentions. And so wh- wh- I suppose what I want to ask to begin with is what are the main reasons that the good things that begin, that God initiates in our lives and in the wider church, why do these things run, in, why do they halt, why do they stop, why do they slow down? And the answer I don't think is usually to do with external problems, problems outside of us that are just too difficult to overcome, most of the problems that we face in the Christian life begin in our hearts, don't they? The challenge personally to remain in trust, believing in God, to remain committed to His purposes. You think about 
the things that you, you find your own personal um, growth and then your kind of retreat from growth or your backsliding. It, it's, it's rarely to do with things that happen to you. It can be sometimes. But more often than not, isn't it just to do with our own hearts and the, the way in which our hearts can be drawn to different things or the discouragements we face on a day-to-day basis? That's what this is about. Discouragement. I want us to see this, just fix this in your mind as we begin, that discouragement in, in spiritual life is a great enemy to your growth and to our doing anything for God. I say that because I don't think we treat it like we do the sins in our lives. You know, you, you know when you're struggling with sin, you want to cut it off, kill it, you loathe it, you despise it, you pray about it, you deal with it aggressively, hopefully. But discouragement, that kind of just general mopiness where you're not so sure and you don't know if God's with you and you don't know if you're going to do anything with your life, that kind of, that, that it, we don't treat that like that. It doesn't have the same stigma like the sins do in our hearts. And yet, as you see here in this chapter, as you see in the rest of the Bible, it is absolutely deadly to spiritual growth. I suppose it's not hard to understand why, because it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in a lack of trust in God. And the one thing God asks of us above all else is that we trust Him. When we trust Him, it starts to affect every aspect of our being, our will, our purpose in life, doesn't it? So discouragement is a direct opposition to that trust in God. I'm not saying that you're walking in sin when you're feeling discouraged. But I'm saying that we should treat it as an enemy. So, what was the reason these guys were discouraged? What was going on here? Well, partly it's just the daunting reality of an early days of a project. I don't know, I'm sure you all identify with this, but actually only a few weeks have elapsed since that initial adrenaline run and excitement. Everyone was running around going, yes, we're going to build the temple. And three weeks later, they're like, oh, this actually is really hard. And so and that, those few weeks in that, that sort of month time had been interrupted by a number of festivals you know how your best intentions are waylaid by a lack of routine, aren't they? And so they'd had all these festivals, and so they'd, they'd had to lay down the building for a while. So they'd probably only gotten a few good days of work in the time since they'd begun to the time when Haggai's talking to them now. And looking around, the place was a disaster. It looked like a building site. It looked like a mess. And so part of it is just that, that depressing moment in any project when you're just tempted to give up. And... Um, you all identify with that, right? I remember in the early days of when we started this church. Can, who was here within the first month of us starting? You put your hand up. Yeah, so imagine what it was like when it was just us in a room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun times. So, because, um, you know, I'd, you read about church plants. Like, you read about them in books, and you get inspired by guys. Like, you know, these famous churches in Manhattan and Seattle and other cities that have a lot of relation to, to London. You read about how when they... You know, particularly reading the story of uh, Keller's church in New York, and he just tells about how, you know, they started and then just revival broke out and hundreds of people started coming and, and people giving their lives to Jesus. And I'm reading, I'm like, yes, come on, Lord. And we start, and the second week's smaller than our first week. And we're like, you know, and by Christmas, I was leading worship and preaching to a room full of people, to a handful of people in the room. And I was like four or five months in. Obviously, most of us were away, but, you know, it was like, it's depressing at that point. At that point, you're looking at things and you're thinking, you know, we've got so far to go to build anything here. 
You identify with that, don't you? So part of it is just that when the adrenaline fades and the reality of what's going, what you're committing to hits you. The same is true for people when they commit to follow Jesus Christ. Some people become Christians with an initial rush of emotion, delight, and excitement. And then the reality of the cost of following Christ hits them sideways. Oh, so I have to actually, I have to actually give stuff up. And I need to start to grow in my knowledge of God, and I know nothing. And suddenly the hill feels insurmountable, and it's easier just to go back to what, what you were doing before. So part of it is just that initial thing. But there's something even more important that's going on here. I think the greatest danger that was affecting this community, which Haggai's speaking into, was the danger of this deadly nostalgia. And what you could kind of called down talk. Some of the old folk were sort of crossing their arms and looking at this temple and being like, this is rubbish. I remember the old one. Some of these guys, if they, if they were, you know, the old one had been destroyed 66 years earlier. So probably if they were like in their early 70s, some of these old blokes who'd worshipped at the old temple, they're looking at this and they're kind of laughing and snorting and, and saying, you know, and, or whatever they're doing, they're, they're kind of rubbishing in. And even God acknowledges it here. He says, who's left among you? You saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's the last thing you want to hear, right? That's coming from God. And so some of the older folk in the community were, were, were saying this. Like, what you're doing isn't really up to much here. In fact, you probably don't realize this. In the book of Ezra, it's just... When they'd started this rebuilding 17 years earlier, what they did was they had a little party after they had the the foundation. So remember, they started it and then they quit for 17 years. But they, they st- when they, they laid the foundation stones, they had a little party in Ezra chapter 3. But it says, uh, and they were, there was great shouting and they praised the Lord. But it says, many of the, the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping, for the people shouted with the great shout and the sound was heard far away. Imagine that. You're you're in a crowd that's going a bit hysterical, and half of the people look absolutely elated and are screaming with joy, and the other half are weeping. It sounds like the inauguration, doesn't it, of the president? (laughs) the United States. And so this, this kind of pessimism had infected them so much that they quit the building of that temple 17 years earlier. And here, they're vulnerable to the exact same pessimism. You see, pessimism is not a Christian point of view. Optimism, I've heard it said, is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. Because it's saying, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that he's with us. This was their problem, that their hearts were, were, were in danger of being infected with this discouragement, this disbelief, and this pessimism. And so God calls out. He says, isn't the temple as nothing in your eyes? He kind of names the elephant in the room. But you know, if you know anything of your Bible, you know that that's what God specializes in, is situations when it's as nothing, right? For Abraham, as good as dead, the Bible says, became the father of the Israelites. His wife, they're too old to have children, but they become 
the parents of Isaac. And then out of them, out of Isaac, comes all the, the, the Jewish people, Hebrews. David, running onto the battlefield, this little boy, he's barely gone through puberty, facing this, uh, this massive warrior from the Philistine army called Goliath. And, uh, you know, situations as nothing. How can that guy beat that guy? And he's only got a stone and a sling. And this has nothing. God seems to specialize in these situations. The church, the early church. You know, after Jesus died, they were in the most depressed state. And even after they'd seen him raised from the dead, they were still hiding away in like a little upper room. Much like the early days of Grace London when we were in that little pub upstairs, hiding away with our guitar, singing songs to Jesus. And they were hiding and they are praying but they were basically inconspicuous. There were so few of them. God specializes in situations where it has nothing. It breathes on them. His power and the church explodes and its influence has not diminished over the last two millennia. It has grown and grown and grown despite every setback. So this is the reason their hearts were discouraged. They were thinking, what are we doing? This is not even going to be good by the time we finished. How does God then deal with them. There's a couple of things that he does in these verses which I find incredibly encouraging. It's kind of a lesson in biblical psychology. How God addresses the human heart and mind when we are in the pits or discouraged. And the same approaches that he gives to them, he does to us. So it's every bit as relevant to us in what we're facing as it was to them. And let me show you these two things. The first is this. That God shows them how that they are, they are free to choose how they think, feel, and act in this situation. They have a freedom to choose how they respond to this otherwise quite discouraging and even depressing situation. And I think the reason why I underline this is I think one of the most dangerous deceptions is believing that you're powerless over your thought life. We often allow our emotions to rule us as though they're kind of the captain of the ship, right? At the steering wheel. And we're vulnerable to um, our swaying emotions, day-to-day life. You, know, I, I, you occasionally meet people who seem to have very little in the way of emotional life going on. who can just get up and they have a robotic way of doing life. And um, in some ways, I envy that. Because I get up and some days I'm like, yes, Lord. Other days I get up and I'm like, God, where are you? You know, we are led by emotions. And the trouble is, in the Christian life, if your emotions are at the, at the helm, if they're the ones cap, like taking the steer on your walk with God, you're going to be vulnerable to all kinds of uh, dangers and setbacks. And you're going to give up at some point. People discover this very early on in the Christian life, don't they? Remember Jesus named it in the parable of the sower. He said the seed, some of the seed grew up quickly for joy. And then the sun beats down on it and withers and dies because the, the soil is shallow. There's no root. There's no depth to the, to the Christian life. Same can be true of whole churches. We can get our emotions can rule us. We, we're fed the notion these days as well that we are basically the kind of results of Almost, our lives are almost predetermined by that mixture of nature plus nurture. 
your DNA, the things that have been put into you by your, your ancestry and your genetics, plus your upbringing, the things that happened to you, whether you were the victim of uh, neglect or of abuse or um, all these things. And not to diminish any of this, this stuff matters. But a lot of times, the way that we approach human life these days, we understand ourselves to be very much the product of those things. So you put in the, the equation, nature plus nurture, and out pops you. And what God does is he, he approaches this from a completely different perspective with these people. He, he shows them the amazingly empowering reality that they are responsible for their own emotional and thought life in, in the situation. Now that's empowering because if you get to choose how you respond to discouragement, then there's a way out, isn't there? Let me show you some of the things he says to them that just kind of open this up for us. First of all, he tells them to, to be strong. It's in verse 4. He says it three times. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Now, you don't, I don't think of strength as something I get to choose to be. Are you a strong person? It's something that you can, someone can say objectively about you, whether you're strong or weak, but it's not usually something you get to choose to be, right? You don't th- we don't think of it that way. We just tend to think that we're born either with a more sort of strong disposition or a weaker disposition. But God doesn't assume that. He's speaking to all of them and saying to all of you people, you have a choice. Are you going to be strong in this situation or not? And the fact that he repeats it three times just underlines here that this is not only that they have a choice, but that whether they choose is a matter of obedience, which kind of makes it a moral issue for them. Have you ever thought about whether giving into weakness in the life is in your life, in your Christian life, is actually a sin issue? We don't think of it that way, do we? We tend to think of weakness as an excuse for the things we do wrong, rather than something we indulge. Now you look at a passage like Joshua 1. I don't know if you know the story, but this is way back when uh, the people were led out of Egypt and they're about to enter Canaan to conquer Canaan. Joshua's just taken over from Moses to lead the people and he's filling some big shoes. Moses is like, he's still a legend in everyone's eyes. And in that first chapter of the book of Joshua, when Joshua takes up leadership of the people, God tells him twice. He says, be strong and courageous. In other words, you get to choose, Joshua, how you lead these people. You can either lead them in timidity and fear and cowardice, or you can be strong, you can be courageous. He tells him it twice. He says, have I not commanded you? So he, say, he, makes it an, he makes it a moral issue, an obedience issue. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And then just to make it worse, it's almost as though all the people of Israel have overheard what God's told Joshua, because then they turn to him and say, we'll follow you, only be strong and courageous. I wouldn't want to be Joshua at that point. They're saying, the moment you show any weakness, we're not with you. Now, you can see what I'm trying to say here, friends. There is, in, in life, you know, we tend to think of our weaknesses as just an excuse for the, our backsliding, our falling away from God, and our giving up on the things that God's told us to do. And God says, no, you have a choice. Will you be strong? Here's another thing he tells them to do. He tells them to work. He says, be strong, be strong, be strong. And then he says, work, for I'm with you. It's also in verse 4. Now again, I think we tend to think of ourselves as, whether you're a hardworking or not sort of person, you tend to think of yourself as just wired that way. And we, we, 
constructed all kinds of excuses for not being people who are persevere in the things God's called us to do. You know, you say, I'm, I'm just la- I'm naturally a lazy person. You wouldn't be lazy if you were starving to death. But hey, you say, I'm a, I'm a procrastinator. These are what excuses I've used all the time. Or I'm a perfectionist. That was my personal favorite. I can only do things if I do them perfectly. So I do nothing at all. Or some of you say, you know, I've got ADD. I just can't stay focused on one thing. And obviously these things become an opportunity for an excuse. Not to stick with that faithful walk with God that you're called to in the Christian life. You know, just that plodding step after step after step. And what does he say to them? He says, work. I know work is massively affected by our mental state. You know, whether we feel encouraged and joyful and engaged with what we're doing or not vastly impacts the quality of what we do. And it's no less true in the Christian life. But sometimes, you know, when we're wanting to obey God, we don't always feel inspired. I think we tend to imagine that the great heroes of the faith Guys like the Apostle Paul, that he just woke up, he almost levitated out of bed in the morning and just stood up and erect and ready to, to, to engage with the work of God and that there was nothing of that, that battle going on in his spirit. And that as he walked into a, a town to go and preach about Jesus, that there was this kind of this confidence and this, his lungs were full and his head was held high and nothing could stop him. But you know, I think for Paul, there was just the daily grind of, you know, getting out of bed the day after he'd suffered a beating and feeling the bruises and the wounds and knowing I've still got to carry on with this mission because Jesus hasn't rescinded his orders over my life to be someone who carries the gospel to the nations. You know, after he'd been stoned, he could have, at that point, he could have said, okay, enough is enough. You know, this is common these days. We tend to think we'll go as far as we need to go to the point where we get hurt for the sake of Christ, and then if we're likely, if there's any risk involved, then clearly God's not with us in that. And Paul's like, no way, if there's risk involved, I'm in. He just made that choice to just keep working. And he'd go into towns and he'd preach the gospel, and no one would become a Christian. No one would believe a word he said. And I know, like, guys, you know, myself included, when, when we feel like we're not fruitful in, in labor and ministry, you think, God, where are you? Are you with me? And you think, Paul didn't feel like that. He just knew, I've been called to preach the gospel. It's up to God whether it's fruitful or not. I must carry on. Which is why when he's imparting his last words to Timothy, his protege, he doesn't sort of, um, he's not all rah-rah with Timothy. He just tells him in this kind of almost stoic way, he says to him things like this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. In other words, keep a level head. Endure suffering. So allow suffering to come through your life and just keep going, persevere. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So Paul's saying, it's not all inspiration. We love to be swept up. You know, one of the buzzwords in our culture is that is you know if you put it on your cv is that i'm so passionate about this or i'm so passionate about that and the new testament is telling us that sometimes you just don't feel passionate about obeying god you just do it because he tells you to obey him do the work of an evangelist he says fulfill your ministry even when you're not feeling inspired even when you're not seeing much fruit for your labor he says get on with the work because you get to choose this is what God, remember, God is saying you can choose how you respond in this situation. He also tells them not to be afraid. 
Again, we think of fear as being one of those things that is either, you know, you're naturally wired to be a timid person or to be a more, you know, forthright, courageous person. I know there's truth to that. I've seen this in both my kids. And when they both learned to walk about one year old, Seth's older than Isla. When Seth learned to walk and he got near the stairs, he used to, he used to stop about uh, two, three meters away from the stairs, turn around, lie down, and then reverse, like, <laughs> and sometimes going into the wall or whatever because he couldn't see which way he was going. But eventually he'd find the stairs and then he'd crawl his way down. Isla, as soon as she learned to walk, would stand at the top, maybe grab the banister if she felt like it, and just lean forward. We just hope she wasn't going to fall. But they were totally different wiring in their personality. And I know that fear is something you think that it's a passive thing that happens to you. I'm not in control of whether I'm afraid or not. And God says, fear not. Again, he makes it an obedience issue. You get to choose how you respond in daily situations. When you're wanting to walk with God, you're wanting to obey him, you're wanting to serve him, but you're feeling discouragement, he says, you can... You can, you can walk out of this. Do you remember how um, when Jesus told the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he told the story about a master going away and leaving different amounts of possessions with different servants. So 10 talents to one guy, five talents to another guy, one to another guy. And then he goes away and he returns after a while. And they say, here, I've multiplied the, the resources. And the guy with 10 Produce, has, has managed to invest and produce 10 more. The guy with five has produced five more. But the guy with one did nothing with it. He buried it in the ground. And it, his excuse is this. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And you think, does the master then go, oh, I'm so sorry that you were afraid all this time. You know, we tend to excuse fear. I do it all the time. And he doesn't. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. You know, that you gave in to fear, that you allowed fear to control your decisions. And God doesn't want us to be fearful people. Now, just in case you think that all of this just sounds like a kind of pop psychology, positive thinking, or kind of mind tricks that God's doing with them. You've got to understand that all of this was based upon their relationship to him. It's right there in the heart of what he's saying to them. He says, be strong, be strong, be strong. He says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And what God is saying is this, that he has bound himself by choice to his people in a way that he will not and has chosen not to escape from that choice. So when we shun fear and we shun laziness and we say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself to your work. We do it on this foundation that God's unwavering commitment to, to us personally, to you, and to his, his mission in this world. This is what the covenant means. 
The kind of covenant God struck up with his people was not like a contract where two parties both agree on terms. It was like the way a greater king would impose an agreement on a smaller king where he says, these are the terms and this is how it's going to work. I'm with you and I love you and I'm for you. This is how the Christian faith works from beginning to end. It's not that you come to God and negotiate a relationship with him whereby you know, if you are living right, he's, he's for you and he's committed to you. And if you're not, then he lets you go. None of that is how it works. God says he, he runs after us with pursuing desire, commits to us by his covenant promise, draws us into his kingdom. And even when we're trying to run away, he grabs us and pulls us back. This is what it means to be in covenant with God. So he says, if I'm for you to that degree, if I'm committed to you in an unwavering way, You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to give up, and you don't need to feel discouraged. Take courage. There's the decision to all this, is what I'm trying to help you to see. It was an obedience issue. That's one way God deals with them. He helps them to see that they can choose how they respond. Here's the second thing. He reframes their project... And their understanding of what they're doing within a new storyline. What do I mean? Well, this is one of the great privileges of what it is to be a Christian. That you know that you're in a story that began with Adam, went through all these successive heroes of the faith, it culminates in Jesus and then works its, working its way out into the future. And we know the end from the beginning because it's all laid out there for us in the Bible. And when we look at history objectively, we can see that it's exactly going according to God's plan. Now, that's a unique thing. I don't know, you know, when uh, it wasn't just this week that the scientists who began the doomsday clock thing just after. Um, the Manhattan Project of being completed and all that kind of stuff where they'd said, you know, they, they meet up every few years to decide how close the world is to doomsday and the obliteration of life. And they do it with the symbol of a clock. And sometimes it's like five to midnight and it gets to three minutes to midnight. I think after, just after the, the fall of the, the uh, Berlin Wall and the, the, the end of the Cold War, it was like 17 minutes to midnight. So everyone was feeling particularly optimistic in 1989. And now they've changed the clock again. It's like just a couple of minutes to midnight because they think we're on the brink of either ecological disaster or nuclear disaster or something that's going to wipe this world out and every living thing. And obviously the problem is that they just don't know. If they change the time every 20, (laughs) within the space of 50 years, obviously what they're admitting is they have no idea how world history is going to pan out. Don't you realize how uniquely privileged it is to be able to sit at peace within the knowledge that God has a plan, that God is working out his extraordinary plan and that is not wavered since the world began? You can take time drawing the threads together through the Old Testament, but it's all there. When you understand the story that you're in, it changes your perspective on your little part within that story, doesn't it? You can see the power of this just in in our day-to-day experiences. Do you recycle? In part, you know, that's a very small act, but probably one of the reasons that would either tip you to either bother or not bother recycling is what you think is happening on a global scale. 
You know, I reason in my mind that China's putting up more coal-powered um, you know, power factories than, than this year, than the whole of the UK's ever had in its history. And I think, well, there's not really much point in me putting this plastic bottle in that bin instead of that bin. So obviously, the way you understand the story of what's happening controls your, your, your decisions on the micro level, doesn't it? The same happens in warfare. You know, governments, when they're at war take great pains to try and control the storyline of what their people believe. Now, this is getting much more difficult in the age of the internet, but this is why nations that are paranoid and insecure block the internet because they don't want a different narrative to creep into people's way of thinking. They want to be in control of the narrative, the storyline. So what God does is he spins this for, for good, for their benefit. These people are looking at this depressing building project those of you who've been involved in, in church life and in the mission of God for any, any length of time will know that there are moments when you hit walls and you think, I don't know that we're achieving anything for God. And at that point, you have to do as God does here. You have to be able to step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on, what God is doing in, on a global scale, which is why he says this to them. We're picking up here from verse 6. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I'll give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I need to tell you up front, what he's saying here is not about the temple that they were building. This is very much one of those prophetic passages which the, the, what it's referent, the thing that it's referring to is something bigger than they, they could have imagined at the time when they were hearing it. So let me just break it down to you in a few ways. First of all, when he says, I'm going to shake the nations. What was the most earth-shattering, world-shaking event in the history of the world? It was when the Son of God was nailed to a cross. His body beaten, bloodied, and bruised. And his life ebbed away, and he was put into a grave. And then when three days later, his body raised from the dead and initiated a revolution in this world which has not abated or slowed down. That was the world-shaking event that God was talking about. You know, when Jesus died, one of the gospel tells us that there was a small earthquake that took place locally. But that's not even the fulfillment of what he's saying here. He's talking about the changes that happened at a cosmic level. The powers that were altered by the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And that then he, is, he rose from the dead and that he is now seated at God's right hand as king over everything. And a skeptic will look at that and think, no, a bloke died, so what? I look at it and think, well, what happened to the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire? They all fizzle out and became nothing. Look at the empire of Jesus Christ. Is there any sign that this thing is going to diminish, slow down? Jesus is shaking nations. He's doing it. It's objective fact. It's historical reality. 
And this is the story that we're part of. This is what they were part of as well in their small way, just placing bricks on this temple. Imagine how that changes your point of view when you think, okay, I'm doing a little bit of work just here in my little corner, but I'm part of something that God is going to do to shake the whole world. He tells them about a great gathering when he says, I'll shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations come in. I don't think he's talking about literal money here. Because you think, what is the thing that God most treasures among the nations? It's the people. Jesus says, go into the world and preach the gospel to all nations. He wants his, his, his message of his kingship and his forgiveness to reach every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he's shaking the nations to bring them in. The picture in the Old Testament was of every, every nationality streaming from the world to Jerusalem to come and worship the, at the temple. And of course, it was a, a metaphor for what God is doing in bringing all nations into his church, the ultimate temple. And it's, it's interesting how the harder people, the nations resist this, the more God rinses them. You know, Iran has tried to make it illegal to convert to Christianity, and God is shaking Iran, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are becoming Christians every year in Iran. China tried to suppress the gospel in the 1940s, and, and it banished all missionaries. God has been shaking China ever since, so that now 10% of Chinese people call Jesus Lord. He's shaking the nations, and he's bringing all the treasures into his kingdom. This is undeniable fact. Historical reality. This is what God does and how he works. He won't be beaten. He tells them about this incredible gathering. And then he tells them about the future glory. He says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Now, I'm telling you, this was not, he was not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. Because for so many reasons, that temple was worse than the one that Solomon had built um, before and that had been destroyed. It didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. It didn't have, you know, they were waiting for Indiana Jones to find that. It didn't have the uh, Urim and the Thummim, the way they discovered God's will. They didn't have the Shekinah glory, the sense of God's presence, His power in the temple in the same way. Uh, They didn't have the prophetic spirit. The prophecy dried up. So much about this temple after Haggai, after this generation had rebuilt it, was worse than the one before. So God isn't talking about this earthly temple. He was talking about his intention to completely abandon the physical temple project in favor of his church. The temple that is made of living stones, you and me, people who are built into this structure, this spiritual house like it's called in the New Testament that is ever growing and growing and growing to become a house of worship to the living God in all the earth. And it is superior in every way to the physical temple they had in Jerusalem. It has no limit to its reach. That was located in just a few hundred or thousand square feet of space on the top of that little mound in Jerusalem. The church is now on almost every corner of this globe. There's no limit to its influence. The temple could only operate by a kind of come and see way. Come in and and, and learn a little bit about our faith, the church works in the exact opposite way. It goes and starts to infiltrate every part of society. Government, right the way down to family life, is impacted by what, by, 
people calling Jesus Lord and how he affects their lives and transforms the way that they understand justice and the way they understand righteousness and the way they understand what it means to live a life of service to others and humility. There's no limit to, there's no restriction for access. The temple was, you're only allowed in there if if you were a priest. And only the high priest could go into the harbor, and only he once a year. And the church is the breaking down of those walls, those barriers, because it's saying that God's presence is now filling the whole earth. That people can come into the gathering of the people of God and experience something of his power like they've never imagined. There's no barriers to the presence of God, whereas the temple itself was a barrier. Friends, I want to draw us to a close. But I'm trying to tell you this, that to be a Christian is to be invited into this new narrative for what the world is about. And then to reorient every part of your life, bring it into alignment to this. God is working out an incredible purpose in the world. Changing communities, individuals, and whole societies as people come to this understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us. This is something that's worth laying your life down for. And there may be times when we're going to hit discouragements. And maybe you've been wrestling with parts of your life. I'm sure over the last few weeks we've been trying to challenge you from this book of Haggai. Are you really surrendering your life to Jesus? Are you wanting to walk with him? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you laying down everything for him and his purposes? Is he first in your life? And part of you leaps and says, yes, that's what I want. And then Monday hits and you, you feel discouraged because immediately you're feeling sapped of energy to give yourself to God in obedience, in prayer, in evangelism, in, in the giving of possessions and all these kinds of things that we're called to in being a disciple of Christ. God wants to, you to replot your life along this storyline of what he's doing in the world. It takes courage, it takes work, it takes dedication. But we do it because we know the end. And we've read the story. We know that in the end, Jesus is going to have a multitude like no one can count gathered before his throne. Singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I don't know what you think your life is for, what you're living for, but wouldn't you rather live for something that lasts? Something that will not only shape how you approach life on a very personal level, giving you joy and purpose, but also literally is shaking the world. This book is an invitation to lay yourself down for that to rededicate yourself to what God's doing. Shall we pray together? Father, I I know that the the greatest challenge to my own walk with you, and I'm sure that this is true for so many of us in this room, is not opposition that we experience from outside, but it is our own perspective and sense of resolve and decision-making and our emotions, unfortunately. But Lord, there is always that part of our hearts that just resonates with your call. It says, Lord Jesus, I may have failed a thousand times, 
I may even, like Peter, have denied you. But Lord, the deepest part of me wants to live for you and your glory. Wants to take up my cross and follow you. And I ask, Lord, that as we're just opening up this somewhat obscure book, Lord, that you will be speaking in a way, Lord, that is not just true in this moment, but, Lord, will start to change the direction of people's lives. And they leave this place. That they will reevaluate what we're living for and think, Lord, very clearly about whether we're living for ourselves and our own kingdoms or whether we're living for Christ and what he's doing in this world. Thank you, Jesus, that you are good to your word. That you did start the building of this new temple and that it is something extraordinary. You're shaking the nations. You're bringing the treasures, the people of all nations into your temple. Lord, what an awesome privilege it is to be doing just working away on one little section of the wall. Give us greater determination, greater resolve to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.